and welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast, back again for a third season after a little bit of a hiatus. Your host, Dr. James and Dr. Dante. Uh, Dr. Dante, how are things going? Now, one of the fun things is you guys can see our faces today. This is something new. We're trying to mess around with the video format and figure... Um, for a while, we were thinking, hey, you know what? The show is fun. Let's put it on YouTube, maybe. But it's like, look, we could just put the logo in an audio feed. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of boring. Screw it. Let's show our faces. And then it occurred <laughs> to us, we have no idea what we're doing. So it's like we're new all <laughs> over again. What's up? I have no idea where to look with my eyes, and my hands are awkward right now. So let's have fun with this. Yeah, we'll be as, we'll be awkward together. We've been doing this now for over two years, and now you get to see our faces. Hopefully, yeah. we don't. Hopefully, we don't drive you away from that that standpoint. You know, we were told we, we have faces for radio. So <laughs> we have faces and voices for radio. Jesus. And you know, in the hiatus, Doctor Dante, you you had two new kids join the family, a set of twins. And yeah, uh, that's yeah we should actually taking... give that some context. We we, we didn't yeah. die. We're still a thing. <laughs> Life happened, uh, and um, the show is dope. But yeah, as 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 Doctor James mentioned, yo, um, I had I had some I had a pair of twins. They're awesome. They're fat. They're alive. Um, and life is just stable enough that I can actually afford to do this podcast again. Because there was a minute where I was running off of like, what? Can you get negative hours of sleep? I, I think so. Because you get double the effect of the kids because you have twins. Yeah. Yeah. My wife the other day, she she went to sleep. And in her dream, she was lucid dreaming, breastfeeding. And I'm like, that just sounds terrible. And at the same time, well, like, as long um, as it was going yeah. okay, that's that's all that matters. I mean, when you wake up and the kids are still hungry because nothing actually happened. The, yeah, so uh, they're they're about six months old now, which is awesome. And like I said, life is just stable enough that I can afford to start doing things like this again. Uh, so that was part of why we took a little bit of a break. Uh, there were some changes on your side as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I moved. My my, I've got five kids, so we needed we needed space, and then uh, I I had a, little, a few medical issues. I uh, tore up my Achilles on one leg, and then tore up my uh, uh, posterior tibialis on the ankle, of the other leg. So I've been swapping boots and uh, rolling scooters for the last oh three four months now, trying to hobble hobble along. You know yeah. this this getting older is no joke. You're actually using this. <laughs> he's actually using the scooter that uh, I bought once upon a time when I tore my Achilles tendon. This is really starting a good pace for the season, by the way. Welcome back. We are injured. <laughs> now, um, but we're, we're back online anyway. Because... Yeah, for my, so for my 30th birthday, I decided to do a bunch of box jumps. And once upon a time, box jumps. Nobody told me that you should not do eccentric box jumps um, off a negative for greater than 10 reps. Now, shame on me for not knowing that. Like, hey, we're the mechanical guys. You should probably know that. But um, that well, you slight know that bit now. of yeah, yeah, <laughs> that slight bit of data from a training perspective just escaped my knowledge set. I'm not exactly a plyometric guy, and God forbid I went to a CrossFit gym for basically the first time. Yeah, about that. Um, so around uh, rep yeah. twelve, first my tendon blew, and I bought a scooter because ambulating on crutches is hard, and I got better. And that that scooter has now circled multiple members of our department. Yeah, we're just sharing injuries. Uh, I mean, scooters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On that that, that, yeah, on that note, we're bringing back the basics. We've been doing this for a couple of years, and we've gotten uh, fairly esoteric 
in, in many ways, but still appropriate for the focus of our clinical practice. And as a reminder from the title of the podcast, you all know we do osteopathic medicine, osteopathy, if you will. And we wanted to chat again today about what does it really mean to be an osteopath? Because there are any number of perspectives on what that means and what that represents. Um, Regardless of where it comes from, it does mean that we, we practice medicine in a very scientifically evidence-backed way. That being said, some of what we do existed before the current evidence, and it just so happens that evidence has borne out uh, some of the ideas that we, we espouse. So yeah, the uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, you're you're gonna say <laughs> see what? So, Doctor Dante, what? Yeah, what does it mean to be an osteopath? All right, so you gave me the hard question. Got it. I'm, okay, I'm, so I'm tossing I'm tossing you the fastball. Yeah, full disclosure. Uh, when we decided to do this third season, uh, the first episode ID was mine, so I guess shame on me. So here's the game. I wanted to ex- explore the idea of what an osteopath is. Primarily because, one, that's the point of the show. But separate separate from that, it gives context to a lot of what we do as such, right? So we spend episode one honestly just figuring out how to graduate residency. Full disclosure, season one was a graduate residency. Uh, season two was, was a bit of a passion project between us. But we were really exploring just the mechanics, the philosophy, just a lot of the ideas around what we do. Um, it was a broader scope, hence why we had like what? The first season was eight episodes to our 20 for for us too. I wanted to put the context for why we do the osteopathic thing, because this this year, this time around, I kind of want to interview people. I want I want to bring in more guests. I want to bring in more conversations with beyond just you and me. But I want to have a framework to tie it all into, and that became this: what is an osteopath thing? A lot of the interviews that I plan on trying to get people to come in for are to circumambulate that exact question. So. Hopefully the guests answer that instead of me. Separate and that's really from- that's that's really the goal. We plan to bring on many osteopaths and hopefully others that represent an osteopathic like approach to treating patients. So yeah. look for that in the future for sure. Now I'm aware that that was a very elegant way to dodge the question, but <laughs> I'll actually offer an answer. So well, th- this and- entire episode is going to attempt to address that answer in a, in a more uh, elegant way, I think. Let's be real. Uh, we'll call this a prologue. How's that? Prologue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you have as a second as... pilot? <laughs> uh, would you call this a co-pilot? There you go. Welcome <laughs> to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Please ignore everything. Don't actually ignore the stuff from before. But okay, so let, let, let's get to the idea. What does it mean to be an osteopath? So at the very, very basic level, uh, the, the osteopath slash osteopathic physician, that's a uh, physician in the United States who practices medicine, right? They have uh, all the same practice rights as their MD counterparts. However, they're trained in this separate skill set, um, osteopathic medicine. The osteopathic medicine entity has two broad components. Component one is an overarching philosophy of care. Uh, there's, there's a meaningful distinction there. Not every mode of training has an explicit philosophical underpinning. So whereas the um, the MD training uh, is absolutely grounded in science, hooray, good for them, 
On our end, we have that as well. Separate from that, we're also given an explicitly philosophical, as in an artistic training, as opposed to purely scientific, beyond what just the, the base science is. That's component one. Component that, two. Yeah. Yeah. We might say we have an osteopathic heritage that exactly. we maintain uh, a connection with osteopaths that have come before us and who have shaped the field into what it is now. Yeah. There's a legacy component, there's a history component. And explicitly uh, a philosophical, I've said it a couple of times, and it needs to be clarified what does it mean by philosophy? Philosophy, what the love of wisdom, that whole thing, but let's get into nitty gritty. Sure, sure. There is a there's an ethos to how we practice. There's an overarching strategy to how we practice. The second component yeah. is a physical skill set. So what is that philosophy that we've elaborated on for the entirety of season two, right? That's basically right, the thesis right. of season two. It's the philosophy. Actually, hold up. That really might be what season two was. It was philosophy and some practice, a, a good mix yeah. of both. There you yeah, go. We're doing it sure. live, guys. Um, the physical component is designed to chase after that philosophical. So as a consequence of this very significant emphasis on the holistic image of uh, our patients, it emerged that the architecture of the architecture of our patients, the physicality, the actual bones, the muscles, the tissues mattered. And not just in an orthopedic context, it mattered to us in the sense of the way the body moved and operated was a direct uh, link to, if not synonymous with an aspect of health in and of itself. For example, uh, let's use asthma, right? Um, asthma is more than just the inflammation of your bronchioles. The bronchioles are the names of these little tubes inside your lungs. I can point at my lungs now. We are on video. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Start, I'm still getting used to that, guys. Yeah, start by pointing out each lobe. We're, 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 no, I'm just no, going to grab my whiteboard and just start diagramming things <laughs> as we talk. Anyway, so um, asthma is more than just the inflammation of the bronchioles um, in the airways. It's also uh, the actual mechanical, the motor active breathing, and all the pathology therein. For example, those who have asthma, they don't breathe with the typical mechanic that they're supposed to, ideally. You have an abdominal breath, your diaphragm, the muscle right below your ribcage, I'm really enjoying this right now, pulls down, and in doing so, makes this space in your lungs to expand at that negative pressure, ends up uh, drawing air in through your lungs, and then as you uh, exhale, the diaphragm uh, relaxes, it peaks back up, and then the air drives out. So you inhale, diaphragm drops, exhale, diaphragm relaxes, space goes up, space goes down, air flows in, air flows out. You have these accessory muscles, your chest, your neck, your shoulders, etc., that are designed to act as backup thrusters, basically, for your breath drive. And what ends up happening is for those with asthma, they depend on these structures here, your neck, your shoulders, your chest, way more than typical. So what ends up happening is there's an asthmatic breath, there's an asthmatic posture, there's an asthmatic mechanic separate from the pathology from a chemical level, as in, it's not sufficient if we're strictly applying the osteopathic mindset to just give somebody albuterol, which is a very appropriate medication, we also need to dial in the actual mechanics of their breathing because we can't separate one from the other in a meaningful sense. Asthma is not just um, bronchoconstriction. It's the entire phenomenon, which is, again, that holistic component. What does that so mean? That means that we in, work with our hands. Yeah. In, in essence, we have two components. We have the patient's health climate and then we have the patient's health environmental variations within that climate. The climate would define what we would normally expect to see. And then the environment would be some of those variations, whether that be 
asthma as a variation or diabetes as a variation of the metabolic climate within the patient. And because we see this at both a 10,000 foot view and a, a microscopic view, we are, we are able to marry these two uh, these two perspectives and change the way we approach a patient on an individual level, essentially. Yeah. Now, for those who have the osteopathic training who are wondering, like, where the hell is this coming from? Like, is this something you and I are spinning for the sake of sounding cool? Or is this something that's actually properly part of our heritage? Once upon a time, let's actually, it's been a while since I cited an AT still book, because let's be real. It's a while since we did this recording. Once upon a time, <laughs> In a lot of Still's writings, uh, specific source, we're looking at um, his uh, primary like autobiography, and then it was elaborated in his biography written by that dude who did the uh, Dry Bones Living Man book. I yeah, forget yeah, his name. Yeah. It's been a minute. But there's this idea that Still elaborated later in his uh, time of a biogen, B-I-O-G-E-N. The idea, recovering from a cold, guys, excuse the sniffles. Uh, the biogen idea was that there's a continuum from the anatomy to the uh, patient as a whole to the environment that they're nested within. As in, sometimes the problem is, let's say, let's use a good example. For a patient presenting with neck pain, maybe the neck pain is because their vertebrae is rotated, I don't know, rotated side bend to the left, basically kinked out in a way that causes a little bit of uh, muscle strain. Okay, that's fair. So maybe yeah, the problem is, is that a, the bone is twisted. This is a yeah, in a very small amount. We're not talking about Rambo cracking someone's head or cracking someone's neck. It's, this is a very minuscule change in right. the orientation. Now, maybe that's just because the bone is shaped funny. No shame in that. Maybe, and that, you know, that's an anatomical variant. Maybe yeah, it's because all, the patient moves funny. Like right now, with the way this is set up, my microphone is to my right. So if I really want to zero in this, you know, forward feed, maybe I should be looking this way, but the camera's over here. Really enjoying the camera idea. Um, so there may be a behavioral <laughs> component. However, what if for some reason, okay, what if the reason why I'm looking to the right is genuinely environmentally driven? As uh, That was a really good example of that. What if my rig is set up in such a way and I have no choice but to look this way all the time? Is the problem the fact that my neck is twisted out of position? Or is it that my environment dictates my position as such? Hence that climate environment comment you mentioned. The reason I bring that up is because the concept of pathology ends up expanding. It creeps out of just being about the disease process. It ends up being this picture where, where does the disease process come from? Uh, the DOs were like the OG root cause analysis folks, uh, because uh, by the nature of the work, you're not just looking for what the problem is, but you're trying to find the root cause, fix it, leave it alone, tagline for our show for the longest time. The idea is you find the location of analysis where the problem exists, you extract out and solve that issue with the assumption that the downstream effects would be resolution. For example, what if you're diabetic? Okay. But what if the reason you're diabetic is because you eat in excess? Let's, let's not be too controversial with this. Let's say the reason you're diabetic is because of excess of carbs specifically, of carbohydrate, not breaking down any particular subtype. And okay, fair enough. And you can say, yeah, you know what? The pathophysiology of diabetes is insulin pathology because of the excess sugar intake or the carb intake, right? Good for you. Leading to metabolic dysfunction and and the so forth. Yeah. Exactly. But what if what if the reason that you eat all these carbs is because you can't afford to eat anything else? Right? Or you, and you're just trying or to survive. You, 
Yeah, you live in a food desert. You don't have immediate access to a healthier choice, either because you don't have a car or there's no public transportation, or even if there is public transportation, you're disabled. And so you can't get out of the house and you can't afford to have it delivered. You don't have internet access. There's any number of reasons why the environment that the patient uh, survives in is not ideal for preserving metabolic health. Right. You, you gave this example a long time ago. We gave it to our students. Uh, it was that lady, I forget who it was. Uh, it was. I forget if it was one of your patients or somebody you knew. The context was she. there was no way for her to get uh, fresh veg because she took oh, yeah, yeah. transport, right? How did that go again? Yeah, it's a good, uh, it was a good friend of mine. I uh, lived in the inner city back east. And I told her one day, hey, you know, you should just eat more fruits and veggies and you'll be fine. And she says, well, I can't take enough fruits and vegetables on the bus every week to to keep my supply in such a way that I can I can do that consistently. It's just impossible. And she was also physically not completely disabled, but partially disabled. So it was impossible for her to get to a store and get back home from that store in a safe and efficient way that it would make it possible for her to eat good food. Right. So we mapped that out because at, at one level, diabetes is a for this patient is a pathology of her pancreas cannot secrete enough insulin to make up for the resistance in her cells, right? The, the cells are not responding to the insulin load, therefore her blood sugar runs high. Yes, her pancreas is over-secreting. The, the proximate, yeah, that's the proximate cause. Exactly. But you take a step back and it's because her diet's poor and you can do the blame game and go, you know what, stop eating like, you know, an asshole. But then you put context and you're like, okay, fine, maybe I was the asshole instead because, you know, the patient <laughs> right. doesn't have control of that variable. Okay. And then you and start going you... environmental and public health-like. And that that type of approach means we see patients in a different perspective. And then perhaps what we what we spend time doing as a clinic is looking to develop solutions for our patients. There are some some clinics that do things like prescriptions for produce where a patient can get produce from local farmers markets that are that are closer by or and some some clinics even will have farmers markets essentially right there at the clinic. So the patient goes to the clinic and then comes out with food that they've just been prescribed. But that perspective gives us a different model. Well, maybe not a different model, but a different approach at least. Right. Um, I, I had a better appreciation of it after. Okay. So both me and Aston read at a pathologic level. Like This is true. Yeah, like um, reallocating our CME budget or my CME budget for an Audible account because I'm spending way too damn much on Audible. Uh, <laughs> ask my wife. Uh, so it's kind of like, hey, this is technically work-related. Can I get this covered? Because, yo, um, this is my – can this be CME? It can't be CME. I tried. But we read at a large, rapid pace, mostly because we want to learn how to – we want to synthesize a lot of data for the sake of the show slash patient care. But there's this one author, it's Dr. Robert Lustig, really cool dude. I've been reading his stuff since mm -hmm, roughly mm -hmm. 2013. His first publication was like 2007. Um, he very recently, it was May of this year, put out a book called Metabolical. And in that book, I think it's chapter three or four, he mentions specifically that the holistic approach in medicine is a relatively rare thing 
uh, he goes into some history. He talks about the Flexner Report from like 1912 and, you know, the death of various different medical camps minus the German schools, which essentially became the progenitors of the current MD model. Right. And then there was chiropractic, which became what it currently is. And then the DOs, the osteopaths, who eventually evolved into osteopathic physicians. And he mentioned that for all of the differences that we have between the DO and the MD camps, something that he particularly likes about the DO counterparts that he trains, he's a professor at Toro now, apparently, um, is that we seem to get the holistic thing very, very comfortably because of how we're trained. That philosophical underpinning biases us in such a way where if you say something like social determinants of health make a difference, we're set up to actually give a damn versus you have to do, you have to catch up a little bit because. Yeah. I mean, we automatically know what SDOH stands for, you know, the social determinants of health. And it's because it's part of our heritage is ingrained in every aspect of our training, if you will. Right. And that's a really cool feature because we're doing the, the, what, the million mile from the sky view, but that million mile from the sky view is derived from anatomy. So once upon a time, why are osteopaths like this? That's probably a good question. Why are osteopaths this way? And um, a lot of that is to do with how A.T. Still, uh, back before he kind of revolutionized things, derived most of his uh, insight as a clinician. He took anatomy stupidly seriously. Um, like <laughs> that was that was the top of his list. You yeah. had to know anatomy if you were going to be an osteopath. You just had to, right? Like, and, and even then, like, uh, okay. So there's this term that we use within medicine, medical training for when your like superior asks you a really hard question out of nowhere called pimping. Basically, half the pimping we get. You would feel like you were a surgeon in training for all the random like grooves of the femur we would have to know. Yeah, and every every hole in the skull and every yeah. nerve that exits that hole that uh, foramen, as the yeah. anatomist would call it, you had yeah. to know it. Yeah, you had differentiate to know lumbar three from lumbar five off visual inspection, and I'm like, oh come on, man! <laughs> like serious? Yeah. <laughs> now you're bringing bringing back some. Uh, PTSD moments. <laughs> yeah, we, we all went through it. But yeah, we went through well, it. Well, you and I volunteered for extra by doing the plus one thing. Not only did we go through med school and residency for like FM and, you know what I mean? We yeah, also yeah, decided yeah. to do an extra year of torture, which was, <laughs> let's be real, it was pretty good. We got this program for that reason. But well, um, we, we had the chance to go um, and get trained by Hall of Famers. So, you know, how can you pass up that opportunity, right? Oh, yeah, man. But the idea was, uh, the anatomy training was extremely important. Um, it wasn't enough to know chemistry. It wasn't enough to know physiology. In fact, there was this thing where once upon a time, A.T. Still was like almost made infamous for this idea. Like he got really pissed off at one of his co-professors at his university. And he like wrote it up on the chalkboard. Like there is no physiology. And <laughs> remember that whole, that whole like, controversy? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's like, this guy's, a, this guy's a goddamn kook. What the hell do you mean there's no physiology? But it was taken out of context. Again, uh, primary primary sources and um, and whatnot. What was happening was one of his co uh, professors was driving so deep into the uh, uh, physiology training, which was one trendy, two important, that he was breaking away from giving it context and anatomy. It was almost like an esoteric, ungrounded sense of how the body works without actually knowing the parts. It's like a like a, okay, so mechanical guys, do you know the uh, formula for how to convert? hydraulic pressure, let's say from a cylinder, 
into like a drive? Like, like how do you, how do you, what's the mathematics of running an engine basically, right? And imagine if you would yeah, study the math- Yeah, imagine if you would studying all the formulas, all of the mechanics, all the equations to balance for how to run an engine properly, but you never actually saw um, an engine block. <laughs> didn't that was know what the issue. parts were. Exactly. Yeah. So, so essentially his point was without anatomy, there is no physiology. Exactly. There was an if-then clause here. But the idea was all of it needs to be grounded to the parts because, hey, guess what? We're mortal and we seem to be limited beings grounded into flesh. The flesh might matter a little bit. <laughs> a lot of it. Because just, just a that, lot. <laughs> I mean, that's where everything happens. We have to understand the anatomy. Otherwise, we can't make any progress with the physiology or anything else we're dealing with. Right. There was this idea that um, that we used to push a lot for season one. It was this idea that uh, when you need a... Sometimes within healthcare, you have a medical problem, you need a medical or a pharmacologic solution. But sometimes you have an engineering problem, in which case you need an engineering solution. I, I made this construct that the DOs, by training, are much more willing to accept that we are actually really bad scientists. Like, let's be real. Doctors are crappy scientists. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have no shame in saying that. We are yeah. terrible, terrible scientists. As a uh, class, unless, I keep mind. Yeah, oh. yeah, unless you're a DO, PhD, or an MD, PhD, when uh, right, at least you have the additional training in bench uh, research and laboratory science and that, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Like a doctor is well positioned to become a good scientist, but just because you got the white coat doesn't mean your science good. <laughs> right? That's the truth. You can wear the coat, but what's inside the coat is what matters. Exactly. But we, what we are very well trained to be, we're, we're, we're really good engineers. And the DOs just take that concept, that metaphor of engineering a body to a very, very realistically crazy sophisticated endpoint we architect we become architects we become mechanics just as much as become chemists right well and because of that taking this back to the automobile uh, analogy we recognize that if you don't change the oil um, at every recommended interval you might build up sludge and you could easily take apart an engine and say look there's sludge there let's clean it out that would be the pharmacologic treatment or that you sounds more interventional cardiology to me, actually. Yeah. This is true. This is true. Taking it apart, take the sludge out. <laughs> or you can prevent the sludge buildup in the first place by changing the oil, not running your engine too hot, um, running your engine within its its normal uh, limits, uh, and not punching the gas every time you have a green light. So you mean the odometer we, shouldn't be red? Yeah. Yeah, we, we should not be running the tachometer into the red, Sorry, the no com- red lighting. Yeah. <laughs> but the um, odometer is connected, right? Because it, of yes, when you're, you're going faster in both cases. So you're not redlining the car all the time. And guess what? The car is going to run longer. It's going to have a longer lifespan. And if the car is built well, which we tend to believe that our bodies are built well, minus the genetic variations that happen through the years. It, the body is built to run well if it's well taken care of, essentially. Yeah. There, there's this idea that as a species, we made it this far. We can't be that messed up. <laughs> At least from a physiologic standpoint. <laughs> exactly. What, what we from do a, with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, sociologically and psychologically, uh, those are different matters. But the the 21st century happened. Even then, those can be argued to be variations in environment that lead to it. Um, I was, uh, and I I don't want to be um, controversial here, but I was just listening to a a podcast from Freakonomics where they pointed out that as uh, abortions became legal, crime actually dropped. And about 50% of that crime drop was a direct result of legalized abortion because uh, it changed the environment in which people were being born. And I'm not going to go into the details, but it was essentially unwanted births decreased and you, you get babies out of unwanted situations. Crime decreased over time because you didn't have people being raised in these negative environments. Interesting, interesting thing, but the idea was the environment influenced the outcome. And that's kind of how we see things just in general when we, we approach patients, essentially. Right. It's Now keep in mind, one of the very legitimate uh, issues with that mindset is that by virtue of taking this zooming in and out view, right? Sometimes it's the chemistry, sometimes it's the patient, sometimes it's the environment. There's a probability of getting it wrong. Sometimes the patient is just straight up not doing their part. There's, there's room for that type of accountability. But if, if the baseline position is assume the patient is always at fault, the nuance we add is, hey, guess what? Sometimes the, sometimes they're not, you know what I mean? Because um, I don't <laughs> want to create the... Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't want to create the image that we are in this position where free will completely collapses and this becomes environment for days. We're not, we, we are more than just automata. But there's something to be said about the fact that sometimes the environment matters. For example, just like you bring up the abortion thing, one of my favorite papers to read um, and show to some of my med students just to mess with their heads is a connection between um, totalitarian governments and pathogen burden in a given region. And then link that with the actual studies that make that into a causal co- uh, connection as opposed to a correlative, as in like, <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, totalitarian governments and infectious burden seem to link. Maybe they're just correlated for, you know, reasons like A does not cause B, B does not cause A. Maybe there's a C factor that causes A and B. But then the studies were actually done to sort out the R squared, right? And the actual direction right, of causality right. such that it was like, wait, no, pathogen burden actually after a time delay precipitates uh, totalitarian governments and then the removal of the pathogen burden given time delay will actually collapse said government which is a really cool study that's right. actually sociology done right but <laughs> yo that that does this really weird thing where all of a sudden politics and disease burden because parasite burden um broadly speaking they don't care about parasite like the class of organism parasite right, burden right. in that in that scientific literature is anything infectious disease, like anything from viruses to like nematodes to I don't know, random ass uh, parasites. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, like actual yeah. worms. They're all in the same category of infectious burden. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But and that- and you can see how uh, an infectious burden can affect uh, a localized uh, society, and that would eventually lead to the sociologic factors that would produce totalitarianism. Exactly. In any number of any number of ways, whether it be because of food insecurity, 
because of certain po populations uh, passing away early, additional stress on, on society, all of those things. So it, it's definitely an interesting uh, causal relationship for sure. Right. But again, it's an application of social sciences, which is technically a softer science, but let's be real. I don't really like the term soft sciences. The soft sciences are hard as hell, man. Yeah, that's but, what makes them so difficult is because there's nothing concrete to uh, – you can't just take a thermometer out and say, oh, 65 degrees, that's a sociologic dude, finding, you know? One of the most dramatic – exactly. One of the most dramatic things I learned from a psych and social sciences perspective was – okay, we're going to back up just a little bit. There's a thing called an R squared. Okay. Statistics. We'll statistics I apologize. Yeah. No let's apology necessary. Yeah, let's let's go R squared on this. All right, so an R squared is is a number, okay? And this number is a calculated representation of the size of uh, a variable's contribution to a thing. For example, like let's say the R squared of um okay, but, okay. There's a bullet and there's a headshot. The R squared of that bullet contributing to somebody dying from headshot if they get shot in the head is like 100%. As in, the R squared is a, is a numerical representation of the causal, of the contribution a given variable has to an end outcome. To the, the outcome, in this case, being killed by a headshot. Exactly. exactly. Right. So, bullet, head, bad mix, R squared is, 100, is, is 1. Now... As opposed to, let's say there's something a bit more uh, complicated, like we talk about genetics, like nature versus nurture. On average, the R squared of nature, all things considered, as in all of your genetic parameters, is roughly 0.5, as in 50%. And all of your environmental factors, roughly estimated, is about 0.5 as well. Now, what I thought was really, really cool was I have no sense of context as to what a big finding is for any one variable. And it turns out, in the psychological sciences, an R squared greater than 0.2, as in 20%, is a massive thing. As in, there's not really that many things in our environment that contribute 20% of the variance just as one variable. Things that do, uh, for example, are your education, your intelligence, like your IQ, things like that. Like your schooling, turns out, makes a difference to how much money you make. The R squared for that's like 0.26. Kind of cool. Versus like... Um, Which is very significant. Yeah, that's a quarter of the contribution is straight up education. By the way, education matters. Uh, as opposed to something like, I don't know, give me something important that doesn't matter as much, like uh, your, your, your parents' ability income. To... Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's important. Like It's one of the big ones, right? But it's not 0.26. It's I don't hard. actually know the number, so I'm not going to quote a number, but it's less than 0.26. <laughs> so you can say that I'm... your level of schooling matters more than your family's income by a factor of X or Y, right? You can have this kind of conversation. I was saying this for some reason, right? It turns out that the R squared of parasite burden is significant. I forget the actual thesis now because I was having too much fun with the idea. I <laughs> but you had a, you had a good idea burden. How's that? Yeah, there you go. There you go. I'm also <laughs> sleep deprived and highly caffeinated. Uh, by the way, reminder twins. Yeah, yeah, double sleep deprivation. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I have headphones right now. One of my ears is just perked up, looking, listening, for one of my twins to cry. In which case, I might walk away. It's 
it's been a minute. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of getting nervous now. Anyway, We're live um, on camera right now, Doctor Dante walks you can away. You see from my the baby key. right here, spitting up in my face, <laughs> or grabbing at your face, or oh god, she loves this beard. Like she'll pull at this for days. Well, anyway, it's, it's um, the reason I bring this up is notice how little of the osteopathic conversation was about medicine as such. So far, we've looped in psych, social health, public health. Um, environmental concerns, right? There's a lot of causal stuff. And that's the big, broad view. And then we keep jumping back to this nitty-gritty, this anatomy concept, because the only reason we care about that stuff is because it's so intimately connected with the anatomy. So what does it mean for... An, look, here's the thing. We know most of the parts of the body by now. Like the head bone's connected to the butt bone via a bunch of stuff. Nobody cares anymore, right? Even <laughs> even like the DOs who train this... We know why do we still care? Like yeah. what's 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 the modern version of studying anatomy as intensely as AT still back in the day? You know what I mean? And uh, well, and it's even more so with with all of the technology to do it and all the knowledge that's out there. It, yeah. It's it's fascinating that we play both roles in a single appointment because there can be any any time any given appointment where we start out talking about anatomy. Well, your particular muscle is tight on one side and loose on the other, and that's leading to an imbalance. But then we get into why is there the imbalance? Well, what's your work environment? Well, you're working at a computer all day. And we've talked about the cross syndromes on um, previous episodes. Well, the cross syndrome is both has both a localized cause, i.e. muscular imbalance, and a more global cause, the work environment and lack of exercise. Right. And we, we do this zooming action <laughs> zoom TM, right? We're, we're not doing this over zoom. Uh, we we Zencaster do this zoom, is the name of our product, right? Yeah. We're doing this via Zencaster. Uh, we're doing this zooming in and out on a constant basis. It, it's, it reminds me of doing microbiology where uh, you'll have to forgive the geekiness again. You put a slide on to uh, a slide tray or a microscope, this microscope platform, and you start out zoomed out, and then you zoom in when you find something you're looking for, and then you zoom out and move things around and zoom back in. We do that on a regular basis with our patients. It's it's a fascinating interaction, and you just yeah. don't see that in many clinical settings. It, it's cool. I like it. Yeah, it's it's it makes the job exhausting and fun. There's um, there's actually a psychologist, uh, the, the the guy you like that I like to read, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, uh, Doctor Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, this was before all the political stuff happened. This is like circa 2016, 2017, just when he was starting to make a public heading. Um, for the record, most of my psychometric and or like vaguely Jungian psych uh, biases are because most of my personality psych is directly connected to either. Uh, his lectures or uh, Sapolsky. It's kind of like sometimes I sound like Peterson, sometimes I'm Sapolsky. Pick a day. It's either zebras don't get ulcers or let's <laughs> analyze your soul. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's a good met, combination. The, oh, it keeps me honest because those two seem to be opposed sometimes, kind of like the plant versus keto thing that I balance in my head on the regular. Mm -hmm. But there's this idea that he really likes to drill into his students um, in his Maps of Meaning course where you need to know the level of analysis for the scenario you're running because your psychological intervention is going to be a function of the level of analysis. As in, 
Sometimes it needs to be task-based CBT because the patient is so hyper neurotic that you just need to give them goddamn orders. But sometimes it's not about the order structure. Sometimes it's not about the giving them direction. Sometimes it's about motivational structures. Sometimes it's a more limbic phenomenon, in which case you need to pull out the depth psychology. Sometimes the problem isn't even that. Sometimes the patient is perfectly psychologically adapted to a messed up scenario, in which case bring in the wife, maybe, or bring in the husband. Maybe this is a family thing. Maybe it's a marital situation. But now you're you're escaping the prejudging turf, going into what's the level of analysis. And outside of DOs, that was the first time I heard such an articulate description of what the zooming in and out is that we do by training. It's, it, it really is by nature. And I think it leads to a very unique uh, outcome in many, in many cases. Now you essentially what this does is it empowers the patients to have or to regain control over their health, not just their health care, but their health. And it puts the patient in the driver's seat because now you give the patient a roadmap, essentially. We're going to work together to do this, 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 and this. The next time you come back to our your appointment with me, we'll check, did you make it to each destination? If you didn't make it to the destination, what kept you from making it to the destination? And what can we do different to get you to the destination. It's it's a completely different mindset clinically because it's no longer about compliance because you hear patient is non-compliant. Well, no, maybe they just didn't make it to the next landmark. Yeah, maybe the now, car broke uh, down. Seriously, maybe the car broke yeah, down. <laughs> absolutely, with our patients. Like that's not even a metaphor. Yeah, that that is an actual actual thing. And when it yeah. when it ceases to become when your clinical interaction ceases to become about compliance or even adherence, and I, I prefer adherence over you know, compliance just because it gives the patient more autonomy that way. But even then, when it becomes more about the patient's journey, and and they're making different stops along that journey, it puts things into a different perspective. I think, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go buzzword more patient centric. Honestly, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll buy it. the The challenge I'll put to you is what, and this is something that I've tried to articulate with my students a lot because it's our job. Um, trying to convey what about this process empowers patients isn't exactly intuitive because what if our thesis for this episode is something to the effect of sometimes the problem is the patient, sometimes the problem is beyond the scope of just the patient it's it, it almost it almost puts you in a position to disempower somebody where it's all just deterministic nonsense right but it's not the case we it's because we put the effort into trying to find the level of the problem it gives the patient the correct thing to focus on because let's be real sometimes the best thing to do is to acknowledge like what's that wisdom thing? Like the, the, the Christian thing. It's the, um, like the, the wisdom is what knowing what you have control over and what you don't yeah, and knowing the, the difference and all that stuff. Knowing the difference. Yeah. 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 I, I, I will never remember where the hell that came from, but that's, it's a that's good the one. Lord's, I like it. I think it's the Lord's prayer or not the it Lord's is. prayer, but it's one of the, one of the prayers out there. There you go. Um, um it's a good one. Like it, it's a really good thing because for your patient's sake, it's really important to know, as a clinician even, when do you put pressure on the patient to do their part? 
when do you take point as the clinician scientist and just give them a medicine? Like, right. Like if you have, if you have symptomatic lupus and it's flaring up, now is not the time mm-hmm. for me to talk to you about kale. <laughs> oh, kale, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like, uh, um, this is actually, this is a really fun one. There was this whole meme structure. It might have been you. It might have been one of our colleagues who posted it on Facebook because, hey, we use Facebook. Whatever. Yeah, Facebook, um, and it was kind of like, it was like a COVID to holistic health, like, uh, contrast. It was kind of like, yo, Felicia, COVID doesn't care about your, um, like your vegetables or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> and then the, the tagline in Bond's like, yes, vegetables are good for you. They're good for your health and blah, blah, blah. But when you're sick, you're sick. You might need like Regeneron or something like that. And then they right. just run through a whole bunch of like really cool, holistic, like whole health things. Like, um, yeah, matcha tea is dope. I sling it like a drug. Didn't hear that. Um, <laughs> exercise is good for you. You know what I mean? Saunas are nice. Do the Joe Rogan yeah. thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're all really cool preventive behaviors. They're all really good for your health. But yo, when you got COVID, give me that Dex- give me that Decadron. You know what I mean? Where's that yeah, Decadron? Yeah. Where's that Regeneron? There's yeah. a time and place for the thing because, hey, guess what? In that problem, in that scenario, we have to jump to the right level of analysis. And guess what? Today it's pharmacology. But sometimes in the exact opposite direction, let's take that same example. What if the reason that person is symptomatic with COVID and everything, like let's zoom out just a tad, we're going into preventive game. What if it's just because the dude um, is vulnerable for whatever reason, right? What if he doesn't have the means mm-hmm. to get a vaccine or uh, mm-hmm. is in an environment where the disease burden is so high that it's practically a guarantee he'll get it or she'll get it, right? And maybe at that point, the job isn't so much slam or general and it becomes the masking behaviors, the vaccine or something. And potentially isolating if, if possible. And in many cases, that's not possible. But right. you definitely try to optimize their environment to reduce as much risk as possible, understanding that there is always some risk. Yeah. No matter so, what. Just, so let me just make sure we got our ducks in a row. We got abortion. <laughs> we got um, totalitarian governments. Yeah. We got COVID. Um, what should we, which, which uh, button should we hit next? <laughs> Voter suppression. No, no, Voter, no, no. There, there you go. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, and there goes iTunes. Then boom. We're, we're, we are now going to be censored. Ooh, it went there too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, at least we're not on Patreon, right? Uh, not yet, but maybe uh, we will if we get enough <laughs> feedback. <laughs> and if we talk like this, maybe we won't just because they'll kick us off too. Yeah, right, right, right. Oh, man. But, okay, so that's one half of the thing. I, I wanted to make sure we didn't forget to acknowledge this piece. Um, obviously, I'm talking about how far away we zoom from the patient. But sometimes we zoom in at the hyper-acute level, for example. Absolutely. Before we had microscopes, the best you can do as far as acute study of the body was that anatomy talk, right? Like, I will stare at this bone until it gives me insight. And to be fair, back when you didn't know what the bone do, that, that was pretty decent, was, you know what I mean? That was, that was better than bloodletting. Yeah. Did you know that um, apparently the sutures for our skull has an architecture? Like it does this weird gilly thing. Right. Apparently right. that matters. But you wouldn't know that unless you stared at it long enough, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have to stare at something until you become so familiar with it that you learn the variations and then things start to stand out to you. Exactly. Uh, if you just give a cursory view, you would say, oh, look, there's some squiggly lines. 
Right. And taking that same mindset seriously, look, we have a pretty decent understanding of gross anatomy at this point. Gross as in large scale, not disgusting, just to be clear. Well, the there, is some, there is some disgusting anatomy too. <laughs> I read a lot of Pierce Brown and I've become desensitized to gore between old school Reddit and reading way too much about Daryl having a party with Severo. Yeah, yeah. If, if you don't know what we're talking about, go read Red Rising. <laughs> Once upon a time, I made a lot of Wheel of Time references. I need to take a break from one casket to another. So uh, screw my mental sanity. <laughs> but um, yeah, Wheel of Time is coming out on, uh, was it uh, Hulu? It's coming out on Hulu? Amazon Prime. Or Amazon Prime. Yeah. No, and I am uh, so ridiculously excited to hear people talk about magic at levels of detail that have no meaning on my real life because, yo, how many books does the dude have? Of 14. Jesus. Plus the prologue. Don't forget the prologue. Oh, yeah, that's right. There is the prologue. Yeah, New Spring or whatever, where Moraine meets. It's a whole piece. But anyway, we zoom in to the anatomy because that was the best level of analysis. That, that was like the farthest the microscope can go back in like 1874 or whatever. Now, a lot has changed since then. We have microscopes. We have electron micro- microscopes. We have NMR tech. You know, I mean, we can do a lot of cool stuff nowadays. Yeah, gas chromatography, like, X-ray crystallography. You know, like we and, can look at quarks. Yeah. That's a concept, first of all. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we're blasting atoms into each other and particle accelerators, and hoping that the whole planet doesn't explode. Please don't explode the planet. But the reason I say that is because that same anatomy talk, in the same way that the most intense thing you could do back then was stare at a bone, and that was a good thing. We can go deeper now. Like we can go deeper. Um, and in the same way that the OG osteopaths would have to stare at cadavers for hours at a time to figure out what's what, that's kind of how a lot of the really good holistic folks, like the, fund, uh, the, the functional medicine doctors, the integrative docs, the DOs who do a lot of this preventive care that we do, we spend an obscene amount of time staring at cell receptors. Like... I feel like I'm having an inappropriate we, we, relationship we, with the IRS one receptor nowadays. Like I might have to talk to my wife about this. <laughs> I mean, there's another receptor in my life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Context. The IRS receptor is the insulin receptor. It, it's the insulin receptor basically. So IRS one and right, IRS right. two are both subtypes of an IRS family. And it becomes this whole thing, but basically. Uh, of doctors, course it would be the IRS is messing with us. Of course. Okay, so um, in the same way that A.T. Still's contribution to medicine was, yo, guess what? Anatomy matters. Um, It's not just to get pimped on by a surgeon during your third year of uh, med school. Um, One of the big things that a lot of the, I guess we'll call them the new age or like the modern osteopaths have been doing, uh, not just us, like across the board, has been reminding people that biochemistry matters. Because the, the new frontier, right, the place where the anatomy is the unknown that getting deep into that gives you insights that can help your patients is being able to look at the minutia of cell physiology and uh, microbiology and apply that to a place where it matters. For example, I take somebody's ApoB and LP little a uh, profile very seriously for things that matter because depending on how, let's say they metabolize ApoB versus what they do with their triglycerides, their HDL or what their lipid fraction is, God forbid they have like an LP little a issue and an ApoB issue, like, straight up Peter Atiyah stuff, right? Right, right, right. Um, Depending on how that lipid fraction sets up, that genuinely affects the kinds of meds I'm going to prescribe that have changed the dietary counsel I'm going to prescribe. That tells me what's at risk for the patient. Like 
um, if their AST and LT is north of 25, I start talking to them like they have fatty liver disease, even though the normal parameters are there, just because, hey, at that point, they're starting to build up something. And that's a predictor for diabetes. So I'm looking 10 years down the line and saying, hey, if we don't fix your shit in the next uh, six months, we might have to talk about metformin in the next two years. Yeah, yeah. Let's get, it, that's, let's get it taken care of now rather right. than later. And th- that gives you the flexibility to do all of these behavioral variations and modifications. Hey, let's let's see what's in your pantry. Let's let's get that changed now so we don't have to worry about what's going to happen when you start metformin and then you potentially get some of those side effects that are that are not necessarily dangerous, but they're unpleasant. Well, yeah. what are we going to have to do now so that we don't have to be injecting medications once a week or or several times a day? Uh, and now I'm bringing them some kale. <laughs> now, here's your kale. Make sure you uh, add some butter because butter is good or maybe some ghee. And, uh, you know, let, let's let's do this. Let's do yeah. this thing. Or but, you can drink your kale if you want to. You know, I've tried that once upon a time and I, I just I can't, man. I, yeah. I tried. Yeah, yeah. It, it tastes it tastes really good. Like if I if I make a kale smoothie, like I'll blend it up real nice. I'll throw it in the trash. I'll drink something else, and I feel really good about myself. <laughs> Where's your kale smoothie? Oh, it's done. Yeah, it was, it's uh, gone. So what happened was I put it in the blender. It became highly processed. Processed food is bad, so I had to just uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, there's. I feel like a lot of that joke might have went over some people's heads. So I'm just gonna. Let that smolder for a minute. We'll just, but yeah, yeah. Again, the 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 thesis is um, this. This is a broad, integrative view of how to practice, and it matters. Like one of the big contributions OG osteopaths had, which deserves incredible respect, is the respect for movement. Like it was never really articulated well until relatively recently that humans are supposed to move. Like not like oh, it's good for us. It's required for us. No, like you need it's, sleep, it's vital. you need calories, and you need momentum. And it turns out that that's a non-negotiable for our species. I accidentally flipped off everybody watching this show. <laughs> it wasn't intentional, though. Yes, I was counting. <laughs> my, kid, my, my kid likes to point with this finger now, by the way. Well, it's the longest finger to point with, so it makes it is. sense. It gives him the, he's, he's like a tiny kid. It gives him the best reach. But... Um, <laughs> Jesus, what else I said? What was I saying again? Oh, yeah, we were. Uh... Yeah, oh, yeah I, movement, I just totally movement. lost it. There, movement. There we go. <laughs> we we yes. both blinked so for a second. We're both parents. He has five to my three. So, yeah, there's this idea that movement is important, and that was like the big insight looking at the anatomy. Like, hey, guess what? Wolf's law is a thing. You know, what I mean, stuff like that. Um, piezoelectric forces are things that matter for more than just your quartz watches. And that, that, that appreciation really early does something to you as a clinician when you're trained to care about something as basic as movement as a fundamental, you know what I mean? It's what else matters. And even then, why does movement matter? And then all of a sudden, because we are the docs who by cult ish, uh, almost like act of faith, believe in movement. What ends up happening is anything that impedes movement becomes the enemy, which is kind of cool because, hey, guess what? If movement is a human fundamental, all of a sudden we protect that movement jealously, right? To the point that essentially everyone who comes into the clinic gets some advice on movement. Yeah. 
I care about your diabetes because if your neuropathy makes it so you can't run, yo, guess what? Your knees are going to break down because it turns out we actually had a lecturer for our residency uh, uh, come in uh, last Friday. And he said something that's it's kind of a no shit. You can tell it's getting late in the podcast because I'm swearing more. <laughs> or maybe that's just the caffeine kicking in. But he said something really elegant that I've heard a lot of different ways. And it's not new data for me, but it just sounded so powerful as a sentence. It's movement is the thing you do to feed your joints. Right. Like your joints. Right. Okay. So your joints need synovial fluid. Synovial fluid is this little like uh, membrane, this little layer of fluid that bathes your joints. It gives it the drainage and nutrients, all that good stuff. But the synovium pumping into your joints is a function of, guess what? Load. Load meaning the, the forces administered onto it. As in, if you don't move your joints, if you don't load your joints, they never get fed. And what happens when you don't feed living things? They die. die. That's why you see runners with very low uh, incidence of uh, arthritis and other things because they're using their joints on a regular basis right. and basically keeping them fed, if you will. Um, and exercise in general is so beneficial, whether it be cardiovascular or load bearing. And we generally tell people to do both precisely. That is one of the many reasons why we recommend it because it's so good for joint health as well as other health. Right. Like after this podcast tonight, I'm going to, uh, do I'm about do I'm gonna do about a hundred kettlebell swings. I'm gonna do a bunch of push-ups, do some bag work, and then eat a lot of salmon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a keto load of salmon, right? Jeez, there you go, there you go. A keto load, one metric keto load, one keto of salmon is that? The, there's a keto <laughs> type of salmon actually, and yeah, it, it, apparently it's also called doghead or dogfish or whatever because it's it's yeah, just yeah. this weird other cut. It's way cheaper, but it. It tastes like how I assume dog would if dog doesn't taste good. Does that make sense? Like, <laughs> yeah. like it it's, gets the job done, but I, like you'll eat it, but you won't like it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, ain't, it ain't no sockeye. You eat it because you have to, not because you want to. There you go. It's like cod liver but look, oil, right? Jesus Christ. I, so I didn't know until relatively recently what the hell this cod liver oil thing was about. Once upon a time, that was like your main way of supplementing omega-3s to a bunch of bratty-ass kids in like Victorian England or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And the Northeast, I think, <laughs> where yeah. cod is very common. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot wrong with that sentence. I'm very well aware. Historians, please don't at me. It's okay. <laughs> like, it was a joke. I get it. I get it. <laughs> and we are not oh, recommending but- cod liver oil. <laughs> I almost want to try it now, knowing that it's the omega three supplement back in the day, because like, like what, what's our omega three made of now? And it tastes. Have you ever tasted rancid omega threes, like in a pill, uh, like in a supplement? No, no. I yeah, I, I try to avoid rancid. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's god awful. But um, it's it. It takes the fish smell and amplifies it to eleven, and then adds just a little bit of a wet raccoon. Ooh. Just that image just makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Has anyone ever seen raccoon hands? They're creepy. Oh. <laughs> you know it's like when we're talking raccoon hands now. <laughs> Basically. But look, let, let, let's start to wrap this one up. Um, the idea for this episode was one, hey, we're happy to be back. It's been a minute since we've been around. Uh, life has been insane for both of us. And it's we're now in a position where we, we can actually come back and do things. 
the what we want to do for this episode and the and several thereafter season is an arbitrary word for us right it's we record yeah. until we get lose the momentum then stop for a minute you know what i mean yeah 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 but what we want to do for this episode and the next several thereafter is to really expand on this idea of what what it means to be an osteopath in in practice what does it mean to be an osteopath in this modern era so expect more conversations like this probably less less sleep deprived and hyper caffeinated let's be real I don't, I don't know that, that may not change anytime soon for either of us we're it's a 9 p.m <laughs> for the record we record on 9 p.m on a monday yeah um, yeah which, because that's about the only time we have available yeah this is eating into my sleep time just to be clear yeah but yeah. um the idea is that we elaborate on these ideas have some fun with it and bring in some folks to really like accentuate this thing like remember back when we brought in dr crompton to oh, show yeah. this running thing. Yeah. yeah we want to show you people who actually do this um, in real world environment. I don't want this to be just esoterica. Maybe that'll, good way, maybe that'll be a good way to showcase us. Maybe that'll be a good way to circumambulate the idea. That's another Jungian term. But the idea is I want you guys to know, like you guys as in the viewers, I want you guys to understand what the DO do. And uh, you'll know more about the DOs as you listen to us. It's going to be great. Thank you for joining us at Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast where we talk about your body, your health, and how to fix what's broken. Have a good night, and we will talk to you soon. Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast, is brought to you by Drs. James Aston and Dante Paredes. We'd like to note that medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast represents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and OMT and will be as evidence-based as possible. Now, comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome, but no money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agreed not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Perez, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Please visit us on Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or send us messages at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. Thank you.